Acts chapter 1, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. And hear God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The number of the names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now the man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of and all uh, his entrails gushed out and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that Field is called in, it, in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again that you have opened your word to us now through the reading and we pray that you might further open it through the preaching and that as a result of this we might, well, not only gain a greater insight into the truths of your word, but that we might be impressed with those very truths by your spirit ministering to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the titles that I considered uh, in 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 um, preparation of the sermon was the church without Christ. And then I thought, no, that's too provocative. <laughs> that's not the right thing to say. Uh, however, this is the church after Christ's ascension. And in some sense, you could say then it was the church without Christ, at least now not in his bodily form. And now the church was beginning immediately to grapple with that reality. What would her life look like without Christ in bodily form, dwelling among them, as John says at the beginning of his gospel, we beheld his glory, the flesh or, or the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten. Well, no more were they beholding that he was taken out of their view into heaven itself. And so we find the church now facing this new situation. In obedience to the Lord's command and to these two men, they were not to gaze into heaven, but they were to return to Jerusalem and they were to wait. That was the present task. And that's the first point. They were to wait until the promise of the father came. 
that promise being the Holy Spirit. But while they waited, it isn't difficult to imagine. And here we don't have to imagine because we have the words here. But even if we didn't have them, we, we could imagine what they were doing. They were praying. This small group of disciples were praying for the promise. We read that they were continually praying and uh, with one accord. Again, you think of this small group of disciples praying, uh, led by the apostles. We have here a picture. Uh, we find it in verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. That's the kind of line you might want to underline. There's lots of lines like that in Acts. Times where, in just a single line, Luke summarizes the church functioning as she, as she should. Well, here's the first instance of that. They were all with one accord praying with supplication. We have here, then, a picture of the church as she ought to be. Especially in such times as this, when she is humbled and nearly, it would seem, about to vanish from this earth. I say again, a small company of disciples, they were bewildered. They hardly knew what to do. Their Lord was taken from them. What recourse was left to her but to pray? They were conscious of this, that there was no power yet in her witness. So she prayed. She prayed continually with one accord, seeking power from on high, the very power that God the son had promised to them. Uh, may I suggest here that there is something of a model for us here to follow. And so I'll say again, as I said, I think in the first sermon, uh, much that happens in Acts is descriptive, but there is also much that is prescriptive. There's much here for us to learn. We see uh, we see the church functioning as she should. And my suggestion here in the model is that well, too often we, we move too quickly. There's something, uh, there's something beneficial or, or exemplary in the patience of the disciples. They're waiting, they're praying, but that's all they're doing. But is it not the case that too often we seek to run before we can walk? And the question is, how are we to walk? How does the church learn to walk so that she might run? Well, the first step of the Christian and the church in her infancy before she was able to run and run, she did. Was to pray. So many lack skill as Christians because they haven't first learned to pray. But that wasn't a mistake these disciples made. And what we invariably find among those who have learned to pray I especially mean praying churches such as we find here, is that they do, in fact, learn to run. Great things follow the prayers of the saints. One of the things that strikes me is in my interest in what happens in Acts chapter 2 and all that follows, the great things that happen in the early church. And, and many other instances in the history of the church, times of the outpouring of the spirit, times of revival, is that we forget, or at least I forget I forget about Acts chapter 1. I forget about what the church was doing before she was endowed with great power. Great things follow the prayers of the saints. So often, in times of revival, the one great prerequisite that led to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was simply this, that God's people were praying for it. They were looking for the promise. They were looking from power from on high. 
in other periods of history. We find Christians like these disciples here, small, discouraged, not sure what to do. So they prayed and they prayed continually with one accord, seeking power from on high. And what you find is that when this is what they were doing, God was pleased to answer their prayers. For here is a prayer that God loves to answer in his own way and in his own timing. And so that was the present task. They were to wait and they were to pray and they're a model to us in this. But then the second point is the present company. And that's something else we read here. We read several things. We read of the apostles, first of all. There were 11 in number. They're listed for us here. Uh, that's interesting to notice in a way. Uh, we find that they're listed in the Gospels. We know who these men were. Why does Luke feel the need to record them again? Well, it really is fitting here at the beginning of the account of the Acts of the Apostles that the Apostles should be named again. For here was their history, even more than in the, in the Gospels. This was the history of the Apostles. Well, who were they? The, the, these were their names. And there are two things that stand out in this list. The first is Peter's prominence among them. He's, he's named first. He always is. He was... Well, he stood, he stood first among his brothers. He stood at the head. He was the first among equals, if you like. But the other thing that stands out is Judas' absence from their number. Peter's prominence and Judas' absence. And both of those facts uh, have an important part to play in what we read here. Another thing that we read is the presence of women in this early church. Or the early seed form of the church. We get the sense here as Peter will make clear in Acts chapter 2 as part of the prophecy of Joel that, 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 uh, that women would be numbered among the church. The church here composed of men and women and from the standpoint of their place in the church. As true members, there is no distinction for Paul would say there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female uh, and so on for all are one in Christ Jesus. It's notable here. It wasn't a throwaway line. There's a reason that he was uh, signifying the place of women. We also find the brothers of our Lord. Let us see. They have a place, too, and they will form part of the record. And and so we read it was about 120 persons. The church as it was then small beginnings, but. The great point to be made is the third point is the pressing matter at hand, and that is a new apostle. Let us see here what we have recorded in verses 15 and following was, I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but it was less like a worship service, although in many ways it was a worship service, but it was, it was more like a congregational meeting. That's about the best way I can think to describe it. Here was a meeting of the congregation called by the moderator Peter, is standing at the head of the apostles. Here was a business meeting. You know, it's interesting to realize that this is the first thing they do after praying, the first official action they take in the absence of our Lord. Do you find that interesting? Although, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, that when the church is gathered together, those small in number doing the business of the church, in the case of what he says there, church discipline, there's the church doing her business. Well, here it's selecting a new apostle. The church is gathered doing the work. And what does Jesus say? There I am in the midst of her. You see, in a way, I'm saying it really is fitting. And they had good reason to expect Christ was present with them, just as he had promised. 
already we find the church functioning as, as she should. We find, as we Presbyterians like to, like to say, we find good order. And they were dealing with the most pressing matters at hand. Indeed, the need for another apostle. What we notice, uh, let us say, as the moderator rises, is that he preaches to them. No surprise there. And so we notice the preaching of Peter. Here he stands again, first among his brothers. It's no surprise that he's the one who stands to address them. What was his message? Well, we could divide his message under these, uh, let's see here, under these two points. There were two main points that Peter, uh, Peter made in this sermon. The first was, the apostasy of Judas. Why does he recount this to the early church in this congregational meeting, I'm calling it? Well, for several reasons. One was in order to make clear that the apostasy of some will not hinder the progress of the church. And can you see why the church then needed to hear it? It's the same thing we need to hear now, where some uh, on a good Sunday, 80, 85, 90 people here was 120. Well, it's discouraging when people leave the church, isn't it? It's the same thing here. But Peter is saying, listen, it's a small beginning. We, we can't even hold on to the small beginnings. People have already left. One of the chief among us is gone. But don't be discouraged. This in no way hinders the progress of what God is doing. The church will continue to go on. The church will continue to grow. Indeed, the way Peter presents this is actually that the defection of Judas, and so we could say the defection of everyone ever since who has followed in his footsteps, is actually, and in fact, God's will for the church. In the case of Judas, here was something that was determined beforehand. It was spoken beforehand in the prophets or in the Psalms, which he proves by quoting the Old Testament. And so with these first Christians, let us see this truth. Let us take heart and not be overly discouraged when some leave us as we're apt to do. I know certainly I am apt to do. But it's especially fitting that Peter, of all people, should be the one to say this. That he should be the one to preach this message. I don't mean as assuming the station that he held as the chief apostle or disciple. But I mean as one who resembled Judas. His defection might have put him in the same class as Judas. For you remember, he denied the Lord not once but three times. And yet by his restoration... The difference between his defection and that of Judas is made apparent to the church. It's not only made apparent in uh, the presence of Peter among them and Judas no more, but in the fact that Peter was the one who now preached this sermon. That Peter could now warn them of the dangers of apostasy as one who was restored. And so the difference is this. The difference, if you like, between the one who is apostate and the one who is merely backslidden is where they end up. It's where they stood now. One man despairing to the point of suicide, going to his own place, Peter says, and the other, the other standing before these men preaching to them. Do you see the difference now? Do you see the difference between Peter and Judas? 
And so it's also a matter of comfort, as Jesus himself indicated in his own betrayal. I mean, not only of Judas, but of Peter. God's will is not being thwarted. It's being accomplished in the case of Judas, so it's being accomplished in the place of Peter. Judas went to his own place. But Peter was graciously restored by Jesus Christ, as we read in John chapter 21. Let me also say more broadly that false sons will always be found in the church. We're about to embark or we've begun to embark on a great study of the church. Unless we think in the New Testament days, in contrast to the old, that it will be an unmixed multitude, that she will be perfect and pure. Well, here that illusion is dispelled right away. No, false sons will always be found in the church, even among her ministers. As we've recently had occasion, sadly, to see in our own presbytery. Do you see how Peter puts it? You get the sense when Peter says this, that it personally pained him to speak of Judas. Judas was my friend, Peter is saying. He is a man who was among us. He dwelt among us for three years. He had a part in our ministry. He was my brother. I loved him. And yet look at him now. So often that is part of the message of the church. Men that we loved, men who ministered to us and among us we find have fallen away in apostasy. In this sense, we must see this as a kind of warning to those who remained. Not just a matter of, of, of God's will being done in the church, but as a warning. Beware of the sin of Judas. Peter was saying to them, so I say it to you. Beware of the sin of Judas. Very similar to what we find in Hebrews. All of the warnings of apostasy there. It's a matter of preaching. It's something the church needs to hear. Beware of those who go down this awful route. See what the end of uh, their goings is. Consider the awful end of Judas. There is no hope for him. And yet we can almost find him saying, or we can almost hear him saying, though he doesn't say it, at least not in the record, Along with the writer to the Hebrews, I have better hopes for you. In preaching to them, he's saying, I don't, I don't view you as apostate. I warn you, but I see better things and I hope for better things among you. But lastly, he did so because it became the, the occasion of the business meeting, the congregational meeting. He opened with preaching or his devotion in order to impress these truths upon them, but then in order to, to stir them to a consideration of the matter before them, namely the business which was before him, that of choosing a twelfth apostle in the place of Judas. But let us also see in the preaching of Peter that there is a theology of the scripture and especially of the Old Testament, which is present in so many ways. For instance, as providing an explanation of Judas' defection, it was predicted, not just his defection, let me put, put it more strongly, of Judas' perdition. Judas was reprobate. He went in the way that he was meant to go. It was predicted. It was a matter of prophecy. It was something 
that Jesus said must happen. It is something that Peter said must happen. Oh, the scriptures must be fulfilled. That's what he says. There's no other way around it. God said it and so it must be. And he said it concerning Judas. And so we also notice Peter here in his early preaching. His complete confidence in the scripture. It was for Peter the basis of authority. It was the ultimate authority in his life. It was the only way that he had any access to the will of God. The way in which he understood what was happening. Even to the church in those days. And to this band of disciples. How did he understand it? Well he understood it as a result of scripture. And so it became the basis. The authoritative basis of his own understanding. Of the will of God. Even in the case of Judas. But it also became. The authoritative basis of his preaching. Peter was a man who preached the word. That's what we always find. Certainly we'll see that in Acts chapter 2. Yes, even this apostle of Christ and chief among them, he needed the scriptures. He couldn't function without them. He couldn't preach without them. He couldn't live the Christian life without them. He depended upon them. It's the only way he was able to understand what God was doing. Especially having lost or seen his brother fall away. But with them, with the scriptures, he was equipped not only to understand, but to preach to others from a position of knowledge and of authority, the authority of God himself. So Peter had a complete confidence in the scriptures and their authority. But another thing that we see as a result of his understanding of the scriptures and the theology of scriptures that is present here is even beyond explaining the fate of Judas, that the Old Testament scriptures predicted the formation of the church. In other words, the Old Covenant predicted the New Covenant. That's something that you find throughout uh, the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. The Old Testament was something that looked forward to the New Testament times. Indeed, to read of Judas in the Old Testament is really to read of himself, for he was associated with Judas, and he was conscious of the way in which God was bringing to pass what was predicted there concerning the New Testament church. And so from those same scriptures, which told him about Judas, he would find many truths that would help him as a preacher of this newly formed church. As we find in chapter two, especially Peter is preaching the Old Testament. Peter was a preacher of the Old Testament, which is to say in those days, a man of the word for the New Testament had not yet been written. Peter was like me, I hope. I hope I can say I'm like Peter. He was an expositor. He preached expository sermons. He didn't preach his fancy. He didn't preach his own ideas. He preached the word. And what did he find in those scriptures? Well, I've been saying it. Aside from his own witness to Jesus, which he, he had with his own eyes, he witnessed Jesus in the flesh. He saw him go into heaven. He saw him crucified. He looked to the scriptures. And he found, he found a witness of the church. He found a message concerning the church in the last days when God would bring a new covenant. In other words, what I'm saying and what Peter discovered is that this was nothing new or surprising. Everything that was occurring here, whether the defection of Judas or anything else, it was all a matter of prophecy. It was all something that God had predicted long ago and told the people of God to expect and now they were beginning to live in those days of fulfillment and we with them. 
Not only that, but we see one more thing, how he viewed the scripture from whence its true authority came. Do you notice how he speaks speaks of its true author? I could almost preach a whole sermon on this. He says, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. That is Peter's view of inspiration. We find it in another place. I'll read it in a moment. It was men who were speaking. It was men who were writing. But the true author of Scripture, and thus the true voice that we find in Scripture, is not that of men, but of God. Yes, it was David, the the human author. But that's all he was. The true author was the divine. It's really the Holy Spirit who's speaking. That's how you ought to view the Scripture. And when you view it like that, you'll have the same confidence and the same excitement that Peter uh, himself had. We find him saying almost exactly the same thing later on in Second Peter chapter 1. He says here, who, who, who uh, how does he put it? Which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David in Second Peter chapter 1 verse 16. This is what he says. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we were made known... Uh, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There again, the fact that they, they, they were witnesses. For he received from, from, from God the Father honor and glory with su- when, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns when the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is any private is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing. You see, holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a matter of their own ideas or their own interpretation. That's how it was for David. That's how it was for Peter. That's a theology of scripture. His confidence in the scripture is sure because he knows its true author. He looks at looks at it as the very voice of God spoken through the prophets. But we also find, in addition to Peter's preaching, something of a theology of the church in seed form. The church as first composed of believers in Jesus. That's what the church was. That's what the church is. That's the first thing. That's where you begin. In other words, have you ever thought to ask the question, what's a church or what's the church? I think that's a very useful question to ask today. And do you have an answer for it? Do you, do you know what a church is? Really, uh, there's no way to read the book of Acts. There's no way to understand the book of Acts and all that it has to say to us unless we're able to begin here. What's the church? Well, a church is this, first and foremost. It's a company or it's a gathering of people. It's an ecclesia. It's an assembly. There's no church if there's no people. A church, therefore, is not the building. I know we say we come to church, but we're really saying we've come to gather. We've come to gather for this reason. Because the next question that we ask is, who are the people? Well, the gathering of people are these. They are those who not only believe in Jesus as his disciples, and so they are the disciples of Jesus Christ. 
But they are those who are conscious that they have been made disciples by his grace. In other words, the church is composed of those who are born again. Even more so, I I go further than those who merely profess their faith. Those who subscribe to the doctrine. No, I'm saying those even beyond that. They must do that. But beyond that, those who have been born again. Those who have been made Christians by the Holy Spirit. And thus who are drawn together as a result of this. By this common belief and shared experience and interest in Jesus Christ. When you see Paul describing the unity of the church, he's not saying, well, you know, these people decided to come together. They just wanted to be together. No, he says the same spirit who gave them everlasting life, who caused them to be born again, is the spirit who draws them together. He's the author not only of their life, but of their unity. That's what a church is. Individual Christians born again by the spirit, drawn together by the spirit. And that's what we find here. These were people who were disciples of Jesus. They were made disciples. And because of this, they had a common interest and a common outlook. They had a common interest in particular in the Bible, in preaching, in prayer. These things are strange today. So they were strange then. You see 120 people. You don't see thousands, though you will soon when the spirit is outpoured. But my point is it wasn't any more popular then than it is now. It's only a man who's a true Christian who has any interest in these things. Who has any interest in coming to a meeting and listening to someone open the Bible and preach to him. And then close our eyes and pray to God. But this is what draws us together. And this is what we do together. I'm emphasizing the unity of the church, the oneness. That's what we see here. And that is essential. For as the church is made separate, called out of this world, so they are made one. And so a church is composed of believers in Jesus Christ. But a church is also led by holy men. It's not just an egalitarian society. There is this egalitarian element. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We all together who are members in Christ share uh, an equal part. And yet there is the presence of authority. In other words, you need preachers, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, that those who would who would believe need someone Uh, To preach to them. For faith comes by hearing. And so we find holy men appointed to the ministry. Leading on this early church. And, And really the history of the early church. Becomes a history of these men. And so that's also part of the picture. There's no church without ministers. Though there have been some who have suggested otherwise. Uh, another thing we find is that the church was founded upon the teaching of the apostles. And what is an apostle? Well, that's defined for us here. I'm not suggesting to, to you today that there are any apostles now. I'm saying there are ministers who are like these apostles. But even now we could say that my ministry and the ministry of the church and the life of the church is founded upon the teaching of these men, these apostles. Well, who were they? They were, we read here, they were witnesses of the ministry of Jesus Christ up to his resurrection and his ascension. From the time of John's baptism up to the moment of his ascension. They were numbered among his disciples. As he dwelt among them, so they dwelt with him. And as his disciples, he commissioned them. 
as he went visibly out of their presence. And so they go forth, these men, as witnesses of all they saw. We read Peter saying that in Second Peter chapter 1. He doesn't just state his confidence in the scriptures, but he says, I saw Jesus Christ. I beheld him on the Mount of Transfiguration. We find John saying the same thing, not only in John chapter 1, but in First John 1. We were witnesses of his glory. We, uh, we walked this earth along with him. That's what an apostle is. But an apostle is more than that. They were the authoritative witnesses. They were the preachers of Christ. And that's the point that we need to see. Their ministry was a ministry of telling others of the Christ whom they saw. With a special emphasis, let us see, on the resurrection. When describing what an apostle is, he says, uh, these men who have accompanied us all that time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Well, the resurrection we find in Acts chapter 2 and all through uh, the New Testament becomes a keynote of their ministry, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only as a proof of his divinity, it was that, but also as the essential prerequisite to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and as a pattern to our resurrection and as the basis of our justification. I could go on. The resurrection is essential to the witness of these men and it is foundational. It is the foundational teaching Upon which the church is built. Another thing that we notice though about the church. Is the priority of her ministers and of the saints in worship. What was their priority? What was their emphasis in worship? This is something that we're constantly struck by in our reading of Acts. And that is the simplicity of her worship. Already we see this in this congregational meeting I'm calling it. We notice the simplicity. Didn't we just read that and confess it together? That in, uh, in this new dispensation, there would be a greater mark of simplicity, not elaborate forms, but simplicity. We find the priority of the scriptures and of Christ in her preaching and in her prayers and in her fellowship. She was not given to elaborate forms or liturgies. You never find this in the early church. No, simplicity was at a premium, if only that they might devote themselves to these things more fully. And so to be open to greater manifestations of the Spirit's power and life. But finally, there was the choice of a new apostle. We read already what the essential prerequisites were. This man must be one who dwelt with Christ ever since the baptism of John all the way up to his ascension. And it would seem, though, we can't be sure that there were only two men who actually met this qualification. And those two men were... Uh, Justice and or or Joseph rather and Matthias. Joseph. And Matthias, Uh, another possibility is simply that these two men were selected out of a larger group of men who met the qualifications. We really don't know. But the point is, you have these two men. So the meeting is progressing. The apostles are saying, well, we nominate these two men. But how was it decided? Was there a vote? Did they put it to the vote as they later do in Acts chapter six? You see, we have no objection then, but we wonder about this. They decided the matter by casting lots, not by putting it to a vote. And the question is, what are we to make of this? I remember reading 
in the life of Whitfield, and he isn't alone in this, that in his earlier days he used to decide matters that he could not decide by reading the word or prayer or, or the advice of a friend. It really, he could go either way. He would cast lots, and he recorded that in his journals. But what we find is that as his journals were printed, that he was heavily criticized for this, and that he later came to repent of it. And I think we can say that we're, we're happy that Whitfield did that. But you see, the same question can be asked here. Well, and let me also say happily that this practice has fallen out of use. You don't find Christians anymore deciding matters by casting of lots. But the question we have here is whether we ought to view this in the same way. Is this regrettable? Did the, did the apostles learn their lesson and later in Acts 6 put the, put the matter to a vote? Or was this actually the will of God? Here's another question. It's a, it's a famous question. And it's fun to talk about. It's harder to preach, I'll tell you that. Because I can't say these things with any measure of certainty. But was Matthias the apostle of man or the apostle of God? You see, that's a fun thing to talk about around the fire. But that's a harder thing to preach. And, and when I ask either of those questions, I'll, I'll just say, I don't know. I do not know. I find that opinions divide on both these things. Should they have cast lots? I don't know. Was Matthias the apostle of God or the apostle of man? I don't know. In other words, as some would say, and I, and I like to put it this way, though, again, I say I don't know, and I say opinions divide. The, 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 the idea is that uh, their mistake was mistake, or, or their choice was a mistake. And really, they should have waited for God, and then Paul emerged as the 12th apostle. Well, that's a really inspiring picture, is it? But is it accurate? And is it warranted based on what we read in Acts? I do not know. I do not know. I would state my preference for saying that Paul was the apostle of God and Matthias the apostle of man. That's my preference. I can tell you that I don't like that they cast lots here. And I'm glad that we don't read of that again. I'm glad that's not a practice in the church today. I would tell you not to do that. But I'm not prepared to condemn these men here. I'm moved by the arguments of the other side that suggest this, rec this record was put here not to condemn the apostles, but to tell us something essential. That before Pentecost occurred, there was this essential matter of business. That the number of the apostles needed to be complete. And having accomplished that, in whatever way they saw fit, that now, perhaps even on the eve of Pentecost itself, that they were equipped for this great day. For there were now twelve apostles again. Well, again, I say I don't know. I'm not sure. But there is more than enough in this record, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, uh, to help us a great deal. In our own understanding of the church and in our understanding of Acts, we can say that this is, uh, though the church in seed form in our infancy, even before Pentecost, this is already a glorious and an exemplary picture of the church. It's a picture of, well, men who were confident in the word. It's a theology of scripture. It's, it's men preaching and praying. Are we not helped here to see the things that ought to be our business as well as the church. And so I thank God for this record, though I confess there are things I do not know even now. And I thank God even more for what is about to come. What we're about to read of in Acts chapter 2, the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Which was perhaps, I say, though I do not know even that. The next day, the very next day. For there we will find out Acts chapter 2. 
there we will find all about not just a well-ordered church, not just a church which was committed to the preaching and prayer and the fellowship of the disciples, a church which matched the description of, of, uh, uh, and the definition of the church that I gave, but a church which, wa- which was pneumatic. And we will be equipped as a result of that pneumatic meaning of the Spirit, full of power and life from on high. We will be equipped as a result of our study of Acts chapter 2 to complete our understanding and our definition of the church as that which is full of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 526.